0: We're continuing our series, uh, Two Weeks to Live, Jesus finals, What Jesus' Final Days Teach Us About Life. Uh, we've been looking in the past, uh, at the past several days before Jesus goes to the cross. Uh, and as you would expect, as Jesus' time grows short, he begins to hone in, to focus in on the most important issues. The most important issues of the human heart, the challenges that we face. So in the past weeks, uh, Pastor Phil's led us. We've, uh, go, we've seen Jesus go to a funeral. We learned that uh, even in the, sometimes Jesus doesn't show up the way that we think he should in the circumstances of our life, that we have to learn how to answer those bigger questions of who Jesus really is and how to experience the eternal life he has come to bring to us. Last week, we learned that Jesus came so we can experience true spiritual deliverance. And he shows us how we can join God's kingdom and enter in relationship with God himself forever. Now that's the kind of teaching, folks. That's the main issues. Those are the core issues that people today face, that you and I face on a regular basis. How do we come into relationship with God? How do we stay there? And so uh, as Pastor Brian uh, reflected a little earlier when he was doing the announcements, um, I don't have to come to Echo every Sunday. I get to come. And I'm every morning, every Sunday morning, uh, when my alarm goes off, I roll out of bed, I am excited, I am happy, I'm like, yes, let's go do this. This is a great place to be, this is a great group of people to be in contact with, to be in relationship with. And so I want you to know that I am so glad and so privileged to be part of what the Lord's doing with us together. This is something we're doing together, right? All right. Well, so there we are. God's uh, brought us this point, Jesus has come, he's focusing our attention on these core issues and then we'll get to Palm Sunday. Now, in our calendar, Palm Sunday is next Sunday, right? But in what we're doing today, the, the passage of Scripture we will be looking at, Palm Sunday has already happened, okay? So we're kind of moving ahead of here a little bit. And on Palm Sunday, uh, just to remind you, Jesus enters into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, which fulfills several Old Testament scriptures, and the people acclaim him, and they wave palm branches, and they welcome him as the king that they've been expecting, the one that's going to come and kick out those awful Romans and establish the kingdom again in Israel. That's awesome, right? It's a great celebration. People are so excited about what's going to happen. But as we've, we've talked about this a little bit, people didn't understand That Jesus came to deliver them, yeah, but not from the Romans, not from the political situation, that Jesus came to deliver us from our eternal spiritual situation. And so he came to bring spiritual deliverance from our sins, not to bring us deliverance from our circumstances. And that's an important issue. I wish we could talk about that a little bit more, how you and I get kind of focused on this thing that God's there to help me in my circumstances. And he is, he's there, he promises to always be with us. But the Lord is here primarily, His first and foremost is is to connect that you and I are in relationship with Him every step of every day that He is with us in the middle of our circumstances. Isn't that right? Okay, that's the reality we have to be reminded of. So here we are now, uh, just on Monday of Holy Week. So now we're in the last week of Jesus' life. On Holy Week, on Monday, Jesus enters in the temple area. So He walks in to this enormous temple. You know, one of the wonders of the ancient world. Just to give you a sense, when he when he Jesus walks in the temple area, we're talking about an area that's about 20 football fields put together. Okay? Just anyone ever walked onto a football field? Okay? Big area, right? Okay? Enormous field. Imagine 20 of those put together. That's the temple complex. There are thousands of people, there's lots of activity. And as Jesus walks in the temple area as he's done before, this time is different. Because he sees the money changers. He sees those who are going to come, people are going to come and they're supposed to worship at the temple area. And so they have to pay sort of a temple tax, and there's those who, who change the money for them. Then they're over here. there's all these sellers of sacrificial animals, and people come and, and they buy their animals. they're right in the temple area. And as Jesus looks at this situation, his heart is broken. And he begins, to, he begins to, to move around, and he overturns the moneylender's table. And he, cast, he throws out those who are selling animals. And, he, and how does he justify doing all this? I mean, this has been going on for years. And he says something to the religious leaders that they just don't accept. He says to them, uh, and he quotes from Scripture. He says here, the Scriptures declare, My temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. So something that was designed by God to be a place where people would come, and have connection, to be able to to grow in relationship with him, is a place where they've come and people are making money off of that. And Jesus brings condemnation to that whole activity, but he brings condemnation to those who approve of that activity. And so in doing this, what Jesus is saying, he's saying this old system of worship that's gone on here for hundreds of years in the temple, this thing that we think is the right way to relate to God, he's saying, I'm about to wash that away that old covenant, and I'm going to bring in a new relationship, a new way. Because in a few days, he's going to go to the cross. And on the cross, he's going to make it possible for you and I to personally know the God who created the universe. No more are we going to have to go and do sacrifices and do actions and hope that that action somehow makes us right with God. Jesus has come to wipe away all that and bring into personal connection with God Almighty. If you can't get excited about that, folks, there's something wrong with your excitement meter. Okay, so here we are. That was Monday, and now on Tuesday morning, Jesus returns back to the temple area, the same place where yesterday he caused such incredible chaos. What do you think people thought when they saw Jesus walk back in? Here he comes again. Look out, you know, and kind of run it over here, you know. What's he going to do today? But as he comes, he begins to teach the people. And then the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the people who are in charge of all that's going on in Judaism, all of the who say, this is the right way to, to relate to God. They, they come, they say, hey, what right do you have to do all the stuff you've done? What do you, who do you think you are to come in here and upset the tables and cast out the, the, those who are selling the animals? Who do you think you are to come here and teach in the temple itself? That's the right question isn't it who is he and so as these people come these leaders come the ones who think they know it all and they question jesus authority they question his identity who are you jesus does something in response he's standing there he's teaching the people and he teaches us three parables in matthew 21 and 22 i want to look at those today three parables the parables of the two sons the parable of the wicked tenants and then the parable of the wedding feast and so together, what Jesus is showing us here, these three parables will reveal to you and I who Jesus is, what he's come to do, and how you and I can have a relationship with him. Does that sound good? All right, let's look at our, look at our uh, sermon notes, and we'll read together, starting Matthew chapter 21, verse 33, which is the parable of the wicked tenants. So Jesus begins, now listen to another story. A certain landowner planted a vineyard, built a wall around it, dug a pit for pressing out the grape juice and built a lookout tower. Then he leased the vineyard to tenant farmers and moved to another country. At the time of the grape harvest, he sent his servants to collect his share of the crop. But the farmers grabbed his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. So the landowner sent a larger group of his servants to collect for him, but the results were the same. Finally, the owner sent his son thinking, well, surely they'll respect my son. But when the tenant farmers saw his son coming, they said to one another, here comes the heir to this estate. Come on, let's kill him, and we'll get the estate for ourselves. So they grabbed him, dragged him out of the vineyard, and they murdered him. When the owner of the vineyard returns, Jesus asked, what do you think he will do to those farmers? The religious leaders replied, He will put the wicked men to a horrible death and lease the vineyard to others who will give him his share of the crop after each harvest. And when the leading priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they realized that Jesus was telling the story against them. They were the wicked farmers. They wanted to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowds who considered Jesus to be a prophet. Let's just pause for a moment and pray. God, in these uh, moments that we have left to us, I pray that you would open our hearts and our ears to what you're trying to say. Lord, this parable was spoken almost 2,000 years ago, but we want to hear today what you have to say to us by your Spirit. So we open our hearts, Lord, we prepare ourselves to listen and hear from you. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so Jesus is there in the temple. He's teaching the day after all he's done in cleansing the temple, and the religious leaders come and they question his authority. They question his identity. Today, I'd like to submit to you that the big idea of this passage of scripture we just looked at is that Jesus confronts the religious people, and I would say he confronts us, with the uncomfortable truth that we would rather believe that we deserve all that we have. We'd rather believe that we deserve everything that we have today rather than acknowledge that everything we possess, whether it's our abilities, our gifts, or our talents, is a result of God's creative work. In our lives. So it's an uncomfortable truth. We believe we deserve what we have. Now, Jesus is faced with people who are certain they understood everything. They knew how to be in relationship with God. But in this parable, Jesus is going to turn the tables on you and on me as well as them. So, in this parable of the wicked tenants, what we're going to see as we look through this is there's three groups of main characters here. And so we're going to learn a lesson that's going to help us today to understand how to relate to God properly. We're going to learn a lesson from each group of characters, of being characters, okay? All right, so let's get it first. First, point number one. For the tenant farmers, we're going to learn that we all have the same fundamental human problem. We all have the same core issue going on in our human hearts. We want to control our own lives. That's the the fill-in-the-blank word there, control. How many people would say Uh, yeah, I would like a little bit more control over what's going on in my life. I know I would, right? Things happen in life. You go, oh, I wish I could do this about it. Or, well, I don't have the ability to do that. Well, you know, everything I try to do in my life, I try to make sure things are under control. So I have to be at work at a certain time in the morning, right? So what do you do? You say, okay, it's going to take me this long to to get get up, get dressed, Uh, and and to eat, but I should probably allot some time because the traffic might be worse, you know, depending on how far I have to go. So we try to control the situation to make sure, what? That we're there on time or even early, right? Is that good? I mean, Christians should be on time to work, right? I mean, the most reliable, trustworthy, dependable person where you work should be, yeah, it should be you, right? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that's the way it should be. So we all want control, and control feels like a good thing, Right? Because if we're in control of it, then we know what's going to happen, we think. But the tenant farmers, they got this control thing as well. And uh, what we're going to learn today, what Jesus is trying to say to us is, control isn't what you think it is. We want to control our lives. The problem with control is that God wants something different. God wants us to acknowledge that he is the legitimate source of all that we have. God is the source of everything we have. So that's what God wants, but we want control. How many of you agree that's a problem? God and I are not on the same page, okay? Same thing for all of us. Okay, so what does Jesus tell us in the parable? How does the parable show us this fundamental problem? Now, the parable starts, there was a landowner. Okay, so this guy's a landowner. In fact, he's an investor, isn't he? Some of you might be investors. Maybe you buy properties and and, and fix them up and sell them, or investors in different ways... uh, Stock markets or mutual funds, I don't know. But uh, lots of people can be investors. So, what this investor does, though, is he buys a piece of agricultural land, a piece of a, kind of a farm, so to speak. He takes it, this land that's bare, and he plants vines in it to grow grapes. He plants it, and then he completely equips it. Think about it, what the, the parable tells us. He builds a tower so he can watch out for thieves and for animals. He builds a wall around the vineyard to protect it. He builds a wine press. Uh, where you can press out the grapes, the grape juice. So the vineyard owner has provided everything that is needed to have a vineyard. All right, do you see that, right? Okay. So then the, 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 the owner takes the vineyard, and he gives it to these tenant farmers who say, yeah, we're willing to run the vineyard for you, and we'll give you your share of the crop. And so that's how he's going to get uh, his piece of the action. That's how he gets a return on his investment, is they run the vineyard, they tend the, the, the vines and, and the grow the grapes, but then when the harvest comes, he gets his share. Is that clue cool so far? Everyone cool? All right, all right, good. All right. Think about it, though. He, bi- he, bi- he buys the land. He plants it. He totally equips it. He has kind of an agreement with them as to how this is all going to work, but then he leaves. So the tenants have received everything they need to run a vineyard, but they have complete freedom how to do it. He doesn't give them a list. He doesn't send an overseer in there, a boss to tell them what to do. He's given everything they need, and it's up to them to do what what they feel is right to run the vineyard. That sounds like a pretty cool deal, okay? But think about it. As we see in the parable, although they've been provided with everything they need to carry out their task, and and even though they should know that they're going to be answerable for what they do with the vineyard, the tenants have a deliberate policy of disobedience and rebellion against the owner. Rather than being satisfied with the freedom that they've been given, when the day of reckoning comes, what do they do? The vineyard owner sends a messenger to collect the rent, and they beat them, or they kill them. He sends more, and they do the same. At well, least the question. If I'm reading this parable, why in the world would these guys act that way? What is the core issue? They, they had this agreement up front. This, how many of you know this is not the way this agreement's supposed to work? Right? Okay. So the, the owner, he's got an expectation. I give you what you need, and this is how it all works. But the tenant farmers have a different point of view. They've got a different issue going on here. Why do the tenant farmers attack the owner's messengers? The issue is, even though they're tenants, they really want to be owners. And that's the issue you and I face today, too. Think about it. The tenant farmers, they're there working the land, they're collecting the harvest, and they go, oh, here come, here come the uh, owner's messengers. What's going on in their heart, do you think? They're thinking, oh, we've worked so hard. We deserve every bit of this crop. We shouldn't have to give any of it to him. We're the ones who've been out here slaving in the hot sun. We're the ones who've been working the soil and fertilizing the grapes and making sure there's no insect damage. And we've been tending it in cold weather. And then we've been tending them in the heat. And here he comes to get his share. That's not fair. It should all belong to us. I mean, in fact, we deserve all of this harvest. This is our harvest, and we're not going to let anyone take it from us. Is that good? Okay. I really tried to work that one up there, right? Like, okay. You know, all right. I mean, now that's an attitude. I, I have uh, some resonance with that attitude. I, I think about that. Because if I think about all the things I have, and I want to think about why am I not happier with all the things I have available to me today? Do you know why I'm not happier with the stuff I have? Because I think that every good thing I have, I deserve. How did I, get, how did I get this elegant coat? I earned it, right? How did I get this amazing, wonderful beard? I grew it, you know? I don't know about you, but when I look in the mirror in the morning. I see at times, I'm not every time, i got to be honest, but many times I see a very handsome man. I'm like, this guy, you know what? He's not bad looking. That's pretty good, huh? Yeah, right? Oh, okay. He's not in the greatest shape. He loves to eat, so there's some problems there. But, you know, we're going to work on that. Trying to be a little healthier, right? But I think about all the stuff I have, the health I have, okay? Every day, I can get up and go to work. Woohoo! Okay, well, maybe you're not feeling that way. But how did, where did you get the health, Stuart, to go to work? Oh, well, I take care of myself. I take care of my body, and, and I make sure I sleep well, and occasionally my wife reminds me to take vitamins, and I, I try. Okay. But I think about all the attributes that I've got. I mean, the, I, I, I take my time, and I try to allocate it carefully. Uh, I try to take care of my body. I have different talents and abilities, and I use them for the Lord. You know, regardless of what you do, you're doing it for the Lord, right? Wherever you work, you're doing it for the Lord, right? Okay. Yeah, well, there's a problem with that sometimes. uh, Because when I get that paycheck, I think I've earned that money. I deserve that. And and, uh, the car I drive, I deserve that car. I do. Uh, I've worked hard. Uh, When I think about all the things I've done in my life, uh, I've lived in different places. Uh, We've been pastors. We've been missionaries. We've lived in different countries and different states. Uh, I mean, I've worked pretty hard. I deserve this stuff I've got. And, uh, And yet, I'm not as happy with it as I think I should be. Do you know why that is? Because deep down, if you were to really ask Stuart Ross to be totally honest, and if you'd be honest with yourself this morning, not only do we think that we deserve what we have, we think we deserve better. So I was really enjoying, you know, my house or my, my car or, or my, my wonderful clothes, but, but then I saw someone else who had something a little better. I thought, you know what, I, I deserve that. I deserve more than what I'm getting. Anyone else ever, ever felt that way? So do you see where we have the same problem the tenant farmers do? There's a core human problem, a fundamental heart problem that every one of us has. And so when the, when the owner sends the messengers, what's the attitude of the tenant farmers? They hate those messengers because the messengers remind them that they aren't the owners. The messengers remind them that they're really just tenants. And they owe everything they have to the owner who provided it all for them. Okay, do you see a problem there for us today? Well, you know, you think about this idea of the vineyard. uh, This is a common way in the Bible to talk about God's people. Um, In Deuteronomy 6, God's delivered the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. He's brought them to the promised land. He's done all these miracles to deliver them. And this is what it says in Deuteronomy 6 in your notes here. The Lord your God will soon bring you into the land he swore to give you when he made a vow to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's a land with large, prosperous cities that you didn't build. The houses will be richly stocked with goods you didn't produce. You will draw water from cisterns you didn't dig, and you will eat from vineyards and olive trees you didn't plant. When you've eaten your fill in this land, be careful not to forget the Lord who rescued you from slavery in the land of Egypt. And he ends with this warning. You must fear the Lord your God and serve him. What's God pointing to here? What's he saying to the Israelites? He's saying, yeah, I've delivered you from slavery. I've done miracle after miracle after miracle. I sent the plagues to convince the Egyptians to let you go. I parted the Red Sea when it looked like there was no escape and you walked across where there had been a sea, you walked across on dry land. I brought water from a rock. I fed you bread in the the desert. I've taken care of you. And I've given you all these things you didn't earn. I've given you everything you need to have a prosperous and a successful life. And what does God say to them? You're going to forget me. You're going to forget me. You're going to someday think, I deserve this. I earn this. I work hard. I have this. This is mine. In fact, I deserve better. Think about it, you and I today are where we are because of the talents and abilities that we were born with. We, we are what we are because of the resources we have, because of the time in which we were born. Now you might say, wait a second, Pastor Stewart, I worked really hard to get what I have. Okay, yeah, sure, hard work is definitely part of the equation. But if you were born on an iceberg in Greenland in the 5th century, would you be able to have all you have today? There's some circumstances in our lives that enabled us to do what we're doing today. I have a good friend uh, who's African American. and He was telling me, he's, uh, he's got his PhD in Bible, and he was telling me, Stuart, I am so thankful for what I have. My father never would have been able to do what I've been able to do in education, and now he's a professor teaching Bible, preparing pastors for ministry. He said, my grandfather was uneducated, my father just went, he only got through grade school. He said, and now I was able to receive a doctorate. He said, the, the time in which I was born allowed me. My father and my grandfather were just as smart as I am. Do you see that? Do you see what he's saying there? That really struck me. A lot of times I take for granted the time I live in. I take for granted the resources I have. I think I'm so good looking and that makes me a good person. Isn't that what we think, right? Or I'm so talented, that makes me a good person. That makes me good. Why do we, why do we idolize all these people in Hollywood? Because they're talented and they're good looking. But are they good people? You see what I'm saying? There's something twisted about our culture and about the way, because that's the way the human heart is. It was the same in the first century as it is today. There's nothing new under the sun. Hollywood might seem worse today than it ever has been before, but that's not the issue. The issue is the human heart. And the human heart hasn't changed. And here in this parable of the wicked tenants, Jesus is saying that everything the tenants had, they received it from the owner. Yet in their hearts, they don't want to acknowledge that everything they have is from him. And you and I fall in the same trap. The human heart at its core really hates the idea that we owe God. We hate the idea that God graciously created us with the gifts and the abilities that we have in the time in which we live, and that means that we and us owe him something. We want to say, no, 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 I deserve what I have, and so that means I can do whatever I want with what I have. That's what the human heart says. Do you see a little problem there? This is a major problem, and the tenant farmers show us. Okay, that's what we learn from them. The second group that we're going to talk about is the, the messengers who got attacked, from the attacked messengers, we see that there are two common but two counterfeit solutions. These are the two solutions. Now, we've got this fundamental human problem. We all want to think we deserve what we have. We want to be in control of our own lives. We don't want to acknowledge that God's given us everything we have. So there's two solutions people try to try to deal with the confusion that's in their hearts. They, people sense this problem, so they, they strike out in one of two ways. They either try to live according to their own rules and say, listen, no one's going to tell me what to do. I'm going to live the way I want to live. Or they try to control God by their own goodness. They say, I'm going to follow the rules, and that means God has to do what I want because I've been so obedient. So to understand these dynamics, let's look at another parable Jesus told just before the wicked tenants, the parable of the two sons, Matthew 21, verse 28. Jesus says, well, what do you think about this? A man had, with two sons told the older boy, son, go out and work in the vineyard today. The son answered, no, I won't go. But later he changed his mind and went anyway. Then the father told the other son, you go. And he said, yes, sir, I will. But he didn't go. Jesus says, which of the two obeyed his father? And they replied, the first. Okay, so the man has got two sons. Note that the owner of the vineyard is not the farmer, right? The owner doesn't farm, he owns. There are people who farm the vineyard, just like in the parable we just looked at before. So he goes and talks to his two sons says, go work in the vineyard. Well, if he's the owner you got to understand, the owner's sons aren't going to go work in the vineyard. They aren't farmers either. They're sons of owners, okay? And so this is a really unusual circumstance. The father says, go work in the vineyard. They go, we don't want to do that. That's not something they normally do. And the first son, contrary to what we'd understand in the culture of the day, he shows major disrespect. In fact, he disobeys the father and says, I will not. I mean, that's amazing. you got to understand, for our 21st century American ears, that may not sound so crazy, but in that culture then, That is like unthinkable. You would never say that to the father, to the authority figure. The second son, in contrast, is the good son, right? He appears to be, at least. The father asks him to work in the vineyard. He responds in the proper way. He says, I will, sir. Now, in Greek, this word, sir, is the word, "kyrios," which is the word, Lord. So the second son calls his father, Lord. That's what you're supposed to do in that culture, okay? Yes, yes, my Lord. My master, my king, right? That's sort of the way you treated the authority figure. But despite his great sounding words, what does his actions say? His actions say he doesn't believe the Father is Lord because he decides, no, I'm in control of my life. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm not going to go. So he said one thing, but he did the exact opposite. Now this parable of the two sons may remind you of another parable we talked about a couple weeks ago. The parable of the prodigal son. Okay, does anyone remember that parable, okay? In that parable, we also have two sons and a father. And the younger son goes to the father and says, I want my share of the inheritance. Basically wants the father to die so he can get his money, right? The father gives him the money and he goes off and he just squanders everything he's been received with prostitutes and just lives the way he wants to. Then he finds himself starving to death when the money runs out. And he decides, he comes to his senses and decides, I'm going to go back home and be one of my father's servants. I'm not worthy to be a son. So he comes back, but when the father sees this prodigal son coming, he runs to him, and he embraces him, and he hugs him. He says, let's throw a party. Let's have a celebration. You know, let's have a feast. But the the prodigal son has an older brother. The older brother never left home. He never disobeyed his father. In fact, he says to the father when they talk, he says, I've done everything you've ever asked. But when he hears his younger brother has come back, he refuses to forgive his younger brother. Not only that, the father says, hey, come on in. Let's have the, we're going to have a feast. We're celebrating. We, we thought your brother was dead, but he's alive. And you know what the older son does, the one who's always obeyed? He says, no, I won't. And so Jesus is showing us here, there are two ways that you and I can try to react to God. And peop- the, all of us, if we're breathing today, at different points in time, we've chosen either the prodigal son way or the older brother way. We've either said to God, I will, and then we don't with our hearts, or we say, I won't, but at some point in, in the future, we go, you know what? That's wrong. I repent of that. I come to my senses. I'm going to do what God's asked me to do. So today, we've got two sets of brothers, two sets of sons, and we've got the same pattern going on here. Each parable has a son who appears to be the bad son. The prodigal son rebels. The first son says he won't go. In both parables, have a good son, the prodigal son's older brother, and the second son who says he, would, he wouldn't work, but then he, you know, he, he goes and works. I mean, he says he would work, but he doesn't. So for you today, I don't know which way you've chosen over most of your life. But you know. You've either rebelled and said, I'm going to my, set my own rules. I'm going to decide what's right for me. Or you said, no, I'm going to obey the rules. But in our hearts, we've used that to try to control God. And we say, God, you've got to do for me what I want. Look how good I've been. Those are the two solutions that people choose. All four sons, when they look at what they have, they think they deserve it, and they think they deserve more. All four sons act like they're in control of their life. They can decide what they're going to do, and they can decide what they're not going to do. In both parables, the sons appear at first to have relationship with their father, but as we read through the parables, what do we find out? None of the four sons actually has relationship with the father. They all want his stuff, but they don't want him. Now this is something that happens to us too. Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans 5. He talks about these two counterfeit ways. He says in Romans 8 verse 5, those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things. But those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. We see this. in in a sense, in the parables. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will. And that's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. The Bible shows us clearly that the nature of the human heart is not just that people are, are indifferent to God or that people just don't like God or the idea of there being a God. But as we see in each one of the four sons inherit in every human heart in yours and in mine is a selfish contempt for God. We resent him. We resent the idea that he, that he thinks that he has some control over us. We resent the idea that he has some, some pull on us, that we owe him something, that we should owe him some behavior, or owe him some action. We want to do, we, hey, everything I've got is mine, and I want to do what I want with it. That's the attitude of the human heart. So if our hearts are naturally bent away from relationship with God, what is the solution? What can bring us into relationship with God? Well, okay, now the third point. We look at the third main character is the owner himself, the owner of the vineyard. And for the vineyard owner, we see that the only real solution to this problem of the human heart is to turn repentance and recognize God's gracious, rightful ownership of our lives. In both parables, the two sons and the wicked tenants, Jesus is trying to show us, he's trying to show the religious leaders, he's trying to show the people who are listening to him, anyone who will have ears to hear, Jesus is trying to say, this is how you get in right relationship with the Father. So there's this issue of repentance. Well, as we've talked about, we hate this idea that God, it is gr- graciously created us. I mean, what did I ever deserve to be so good looking? What did I ever do to deserve that? I mean, what inherent quality there is to you and I that we deserve to have the abilities we have. You know, I think about this sometimes. When, you know when they interview uh, sports figures, right, like after maybe a big victory? And some of them are like, yeah, well, you know, yeah, I just knew I had to do this and I had to do that. It's all about them. And then every once in a while you run to someone who's like trying to give the glory to God, and sometimes they do it in kind of a funny way. <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? Like, I just want to give the glory to Jesus Christ, you know, which is great. And then the person interviewing is like, oh, and back to you, Fred. You know, and they don't know what to do with that. That's, like, weird. Like, you just did the greatest achievement that anyone could ever dream of, scored the winning touchdown or hit the winning home run, and all you can do is give the glory to Jesus Christ. What kind of religious fanatic are you? That makes no sense to the world, right? Because of the fundamental problem. In our human hearts, we believe we deserve it. Okay? And the vineyard owner, though, shows us something very different. There's this issue of grace. Yes, there's this core issue, this core sin that we hate the idea that we owe God, but below that core sin is something that's even deeper. We resent the idea that the Bible teaches that we are sinners who need to be saved by God's grace. Many people in this world will become Christians if they could do it on their own basis. They could do it on their own way. If we could say, oh God, oh, you've got a good thing going here. This seems to be a well-run organization. I'm willing to take my talents and take them to South Beach. I mean, uh, take my talents... Some of you don't know who LeBron James is. Okay, that's all right. Uh, we're willing to take our talents and our abilities and all the wonderful things we have, and we're going to join your organization, God. That's the approach the human heart would like. So isn't God lucky to have me in his organization? Isn't that great? I'm a real asset to the kingdom of God. That's the approach of the human. But that's not the way God's kingdom works. The Bible says something very different. If we look again in the parable of the two sons, when the father asks the first son, he says, I won't it tells us it says he la- he answered i will not but later he changed his mind and this word changed his mind is exactly the same word as we use the word repentance okay so what is repentance when i use this it's kind of a church word isn't it you don't hear that word very much out there in society repentance is something we talk about when we talk about our hearts and, and we talk about god but repentance just means changing your mind which changing your mind means changing your will right So the first son said, I won't. But later he reconsidered in his mind. And he said, you know what? I was wrong to say that to my father. I'm going to go and do what he asked me to do. He changed his mind. He changed his heart. The issue here is that in our human hearts, we don't want to see ourselves as sinners who need God's grace, as sinners who owe everything that we have to the rightful owner. Jesus makes this clear in verse 32. He says, even after you saw this happening, You refused to believe. You did not repent. What Jesus is saying to us is, listen, your track record doesn't matter one bit to me. I don't care how good you've been, and I don't care how bad you've been. The difference between heaven and hell is not found in your track record. It's not found in your past. The difference between heaven and hell is found in what are you going to do with your heart? Jesus says this in Matthew 21, 31. Jesus explains the meaning of the parable of two sons. He says, I tell you the truth. Corrupt tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you do. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the religious leaders. He's talking to the people at the top of society, the rabbis, the scribes, the people everyone looked up to, the good people. And he's telling the good people like you and me, maybe, that prostitutes and tax collectors would get in the kingdom before you do. For John the Baptist came and showed you the right way to live, but you didn't believe him, while tax collectors and prostitutes did. And even when you saw this happening, you refused to believe him and repent of your sins. Jesus saying to us, let me make myself perfectly clear. The younger brothers of the world, the prodigal sons and daughters, will get in the kingdom of God before you guys, the elder brothers, who look like they're doing everything the right way. Now we can ask the question, how can that be right? I mean, how could Jesus say something that radical? I mean, that's shocking what he says here. Because Jesus is saying the only thing that changes what's wrong with your heart, the one thing that gets down underneath that hostility of you wanting to believe you're an owner when you really know you're just a tenant, is this idea of repentance. He says, stop resisting what I've given you. Stop trying to take it for yourself and acknowledge who I am and what I've done in your life. And I've got more to give you. Think about this. In the parable of the the, the wicked tenants, who is the last messenger the owner sends? The farmers grabbed his servants, beat one, killed one, stoned the other. He sent a larger group, but finally the owner sent his son, thinking, surely they will respect my son. Think about that. What person in their right mind would do that? Okay, I send, I send a couple servants, and they beat them, and they kill them. Okay, let me send more. And they send more, and they do the same thing. Oh, well, you know, if I send my son, surely they'll respect him. Surely they'll see that, that I'm showing them respect by sending the one who is my heir to my, to my kingdom, right? Nobody would do that. What do you think the owner would usually do? He would call the police. He would get the army. He would go in there and kick their tail. Can you say that in church? Okay, I just did, okay. Isn't that what a normal person would do, right? So when Jesus tells the story about a vineyard owner who sends his son after all the tenants have done, what is that showing us? It's telling us the owner isn't about collecting the rent. The rent is a means to the end. What does the owner really want? He wants relationship. The owner wants relationship with the farmers. God wants to have relationship with you and I. He wants to know us. He wants us to know him. When we sang that song today about being in his presence, did you sense anything? Did you sense that God, the Holy Spirit, is coming and he's, he's wooing us? He's saying, come closer. Come closer. I've got more for you. I've got things for you you never dreamed of. I've got a purpose for every single day of the rest of your life. All those talents and abilities I gave you, I've got a purpose for them. I'm gonna, I could, I could, you and I together, We could do amazing things to bless other people. That's what God has for us today. That's what the vineyard owner wants. He wants to have a relationship with the farmers. We see this in 1 John 4. God showed us how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we may have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Even though in our hearts, we might, we might say, well, I've been a Christian for many years, Stuart. Okay, fine. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. It could have been a very short time. It could have been a very much long amount of time. The tendency of our human hearts is still to want to believe we're owners. And God comes to us and says, he says, I'm sending you the most valuable thing I have. I'm making myself completely vulnerable by sending my son to you. And he's reaching out to us, and he's saying, won't you come in? You know, the parable after the wicked tenants is a parable of the great feast. And the parable of the great feast, all the important people are are invited to the feast, but they refuse to come. In fact, they attack the messengers. Sound familiar? And so what does the king do? He's, at great expense, he's prepared this sumptuous, amazing, extravagant feast. And he sends his messengers out. He sends his servant and says, get everybody, and get everyone to come. So they go out to the highways and the byways. They go out into the streets, and they get everybody to come in. Not just the good people, the bad people too. He gets everyone. They all come in to his feast. Now, you ask the question, how can that be true? You're saying that God invites everyone into his kingdom? Yes! For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him shouldn't perish but could have eternal life. And that eternal life is this banquet. It's this feast that he's invited us to. And God says, but you don't get in on your own goodness. You come as you are. But as you, walk to the, as you walk up to the banquet hall, as you're about to come into the feast, not only has the king prepared this amazing feast for us that has been so incredibly expensive and so expen- incredibly extravagant, but the, the father, the king, sent his son to die for us so that when you and I are ready when we say yes I want to enter into the feast he comes and just as we are in our own filthy clothes in our own the, the depth of our heart where we think we're owners when we're only tenants and the king says I forgive you and he clothes us with his righteousness he puts wedding garments on us that are beautiful we've got old clothes we've got they're torn and they're dirty rags and we come to the king's feast and he says, don't worry about that. Here, I've got a beautiful suit for you. I've got a beautiful dress for you. Don't you look good? Mm, you look like my son. You look like my child. Some and a daughter. Come into my kingdom. I've got a place ready for you at the feast. And we'll be together forever. Folks, Jesus is about to go to the cross. And he wants to give you and I a chance to accept him. He wants to give you and I a chance to understand that our human heart it's, it's bent away from God. It's bent towards selfish control. It's bent to thinking we deserve everything we have. But if we'll stop today and we'll recognize that the owner of the vineyard is the one who gave us everything we have, everything good we have today comes from God. And Jesus says, if you'll come to me, my yoke is easy. My yoke is light. I've got wonderful things for you. You walk with me, and I'll bring you through the difficult points of your life. And I'll bring you to a place of incredible feasting and banqueting of joy beyond anything you've ever thought of in your life. As our worship team comes, uh, help us close today. Could we stand? I'd, I'd like to pray together. Jesus Christ offers an invitation to us today. Maybe you've never accepted him as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you've never said to him, Yes, Lord, I will go into the vineyard, and you've gone. Today, he says to you, he gives that invitation to you again, and he says, will you come? Will you come and acknowledge who I am? Will you submit yourself to me and receive all the wonderful goodness, all the gifts, all the love I have for you? Let's bow and let's pray together. Lord, we come to you right now, and God, for anyone here today who has never made that choice before, God, I pray that they would right now pray to you and ask you to come and be the Lord of their life. God, as each one of us in our hearts desires that control of ourselves, Lord, we, each one of us today, we again say to you, Jesus, come into my heart. Be my Lord. Lord, you died on the cross to make it possible for me to have a relationship with the Father. Lord, you died to make it possible for me, just as I am, to come into your kingdom, to come into your feast. And God, I pray right now that you would take control. God, I acknowledge that everything that I have that is good comes from you. And so, Lord, I am willing to do with my life today, on this Sunday in March 2015, I'm willing to walk in your steps. I'm willing to walk in your ways. Where you lead me, Lord, I will follow. What you say to me, Lord, I will do. God, we pray that you would draw our hearts to you again. We pray this all in your precious name, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Amen.